I think what people do on the internet is they kind of like build up other people into characters online and it's this like crazy soap opera every day. Taylor Lorenz has been an observer and a participant in the internet culture that has come to dominate so much of the last 20 years of our lives. It's a period that has seen the rise of massive social media platforms, the decay of traditional media, and the increasing power of online influences. And Taylor is one of them. All of this history is the subject of her upcoming book, Extremely Online, and much of the conversation we have in this interview. She's been at a bunch of places, the Daily Mail, the Hill, the Atlantic, the New York Times, and now the Washington Post as a tech culture reporter. She also has a huge presence on Twitter and TikTok and Instagram. And she is, if you've been paying any attention at all, a lightning rod in the culture wars that are taking place on those platforms. She is, in a way, the media internet's ultimate character. But despite the storms and the hits, the highs and the lows, she remains a tech optimist. She continues to believe in the democratizing force of social media and the ability of it to give new people new voices and new power. She's not about to step away anytime soon. Welcome to The Active Voice. I'm Hamish McKenzie, and here is Taylor Lorenz. Okay, Taylor Lorenz, welcome to The Active Voice. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Are you glad that you're a journalist? Yes, it's it's probably the best job in the whole world, in my opinion. Full of um, just smooth sailing, no big dramas. <laughs> yeah, just, no, you know what it, it is? You're always learning. It's like one of those jobs where you're always learning and you're always meeting new people and you're always kind of being exposed to new ideas and, and new technologies. I cover tech. So for someone like me, it's a, it's a dream. Did you have a dreams of being a journalist as a young woman? I never even considered it. No, I mean, I you didn't, never considered it. Of course not. I, I didn't know any journalists and I never that was never even on my radar. Um, I grew up mostly well in New York and then mostly in Connecticut in Greenwich, Connecticut, where I would say like it's like 70 percent investment banking. I just had a pretty boring suburban childhood and I didn't really think about journalism ever. I think we got like New York Magazine and I loved that. But no, I I mean, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I tried a lot of things. I thought I would be an artist and I, I went to art school for a very brief time. What and kind I, of art? Uh, fine art, like painting. I won my town's art fair. And, well, do you yeah. still paint? Uh, no, not really anymore. But I did, I mean, I did a lot of art growing up and I sort of I mean, I was always into creative stuff. I'm extremely, I have a lot of learning disabilities. I'm very dyslexic. I had a really hard time in school. So I think I just gravitated towards creative stuff. How did you overcome dyslexia to become a journalist? Um, I don't know if my editor would agree I've overcome it. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely, you know, it's one of those things that I think growing up in the 90s, there was like not much understanding of. And so it was really hard in, in school. To I am not a huge believer in the traditional school system for that reason. But I don't know. I just kind of worked with it. I, I mean, still today, I'm, I'm, I have a hard time. But I, I guess it's just like forced exposure. And um, yeah, I don't know. There's no like cure as far as I'm aware. It's just kind of something I deal with and have. But I think it teaches, you know, it it taught me to appreciate like thinking differently, which I think. I mean, there's a lot of entrepreneurs that are that have dyslexia, mm-hmm. and surprising so. number of writers are dyslexic as well. It's like something if you can overcome it, you've got a special superpower there. Yeah, I think it. I, I mean, I just think it's a lot of creative people, weirdly. So, do you have synesthesia as well? That seems to be a popular creative uh, trait to have. <laughs> no, I do not. I, I always but it ask. Sounds, it sounds really interesting. Yeah, that would be one of the more fun things. Maybe it's torment, and I shouldn't just assume that that's going to be fun. But yeah, like this ice cream tastes purple. Sounds interesting. Yeah, to me. it sounds interesting. I'm so I love those things that like reveal the different ways that people think about things. Like you show the same image and then it's like, you know, which did you see or whatever. But yeah, no, I I was I never was into writing at all. I, I still I mean, writing is just a, a way for me to do journalism. I don't really love writing. They say reporters like fall into two categories. So you're either you either love the reporting side of it or you love the writing side of it. And I'm definitely I love getting information and finding out new information and presenting 
of, you know, my thoughts to the world, I guess, in a certain way and, and sharing information with people. But I don't, I'm not married to like the writing part of it. Could you do TV or, or radio well, podcasts? TV is dying, uh, hopefully soon. <laughs> YouTube is, does YouTube oh, count as TV YouTube. to you? Yeah, well, I, you, I T- don't count TikTok's YouTube. another big one I've heard of. <laughs> I don't count any of that as TV, but I count that as the internet. Yeah. But uh, no, I wouldn't do TV because I don't, that's not for me. I like the internet and I like to, I like, I don't like forms of media where it's just one way broadcast. I like the discussion that you get. And I like when I write something, I put it into the world and I can hear back from people. And you definitely hear back from people. Yeah. <laughs> Are you sure you like that? Like, isn't the internet a hellhole for you? Well, I love it. I mean, yeah, it's there's bad parts of it, but I I think of my life before the internet and I would never go back to that. I think that the beauty of the internet is you were exposed to so many different people and ideas. And, you know, as I mentioned, I grew up in this suburb and it was just, I felt like I never belonged. And I felt I was so depressed. Like I was just like, oh, is this, is this the world? Like these people suck. And um, no hate to a lot of the people I grew up with. I'm not even. Connecticut's having a rough time today. I mean, it's fine. It's, it's a, look, I'm so lucky to grow up in a, you know, my parents moved there for the school system and I'm, I'm lucky to grow up in a, in a nice place. But I think a lot of people, you know, that grew up in boring suburbs can relate to that, especially when you're growing up outside New York City, which is like the most interesting, fun city in the world. Like all I ever wanted to do was just move back to New York. I found this letter that I had written when I was little that I I was writing about how much I hated Connecticut. We had moved from the city out to the suburbs and um, my parents were moving recently and I found it and I was just like, this is so, I would be worried about my child. I was like so like miserable and dark about it. But that's also just being a teenager, you know. Is the internet, was the internet kind of like New York for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I wasn't, hyper online because I was doing a lot of art. So I was like, I mean, I would just stay in my room and like paint and draw. And I went to art camp every year. And I my goal was to go to RISD. And I um, I just, I didn't actually spend much time online. And I think people always ask me that. They're like, weren't you on whatever? I never even had a MySpace. Like I just, I had AIM, obviously. But it wasn't until Tumblr right after graduation that I really got online and I just, it was like night and day. Like, I was like, oh my God, there's people out there that I can relate to instead of these people that I've hung out with forever that I I just, they were just kind of circumstantial people that I grew up with, you know, and some some friends I grew up with are still my friends, but. They're going to be loving hearing this. So, (laughs) So what is it, what was it about Tumblr that grabbed you? So I, I mean, I consider Tumblr the best social platform ever to have existed. Um, no, no problems on Tumblr. <laughs> I know. Well, I mean, back in 2009, Tumblr was so ascendant. I mean, I started as a blogger and I had a bunch of blogs on Blogspot and blogger, you know, blog blogs. And then I just and I liked that. Um, but then I discovered Tumblr and it had all this social functionality to blogging that I just loved. You could curate things too. I mean, there's the concept of reblogging, like Tumblr, obviously reblogging existed prior to Tumblr actually, you know, was invented a few years before, but hmm. but Tumblr really brought it to life. And so, you know, I liked the idea of sharing stuff and discovering stuff and discovering people and finding the types of people that I would have never met in my daily life. At the time, I was just a temp. So what were the kinds of people that really lit you up? Um, creative people. I mean, writers. There was this guy, Ned Hepburn, who was like kind of a writer, blogger. I mean, I just, what I loved about the blogging ecosystem is it was a lot of different point of views and a lot of people from really different backgrounds that I hadn't ever really encountered before. And I just, I I loved like peeking into people's worlds, which we do all day long now on the current internet. But it's hard to remember how disjointed everything was and how hard it was to find people. I mean, Mm -hmm. in the blogging world, it's like you kind of had to find blogs through other blogs. Like Mm -hmm. you didn't just find people. So Tumblr allowed for discovery. And I think discovery is so crucial to any social product and, and Tumblr did a good job of that back then. So, And this is probably, was it before iPhone had become a big thing? So people still like on their computers, probably in a lab in their university or at home on the family computer or something. Yeah. I mean, it was 2009. So the iPhone had come out two years prior, but most people didn't have an right, iPhone. Yeah, I mean, I certainly didn't at that point. Yeah. I was broke. So I had my like Nokia still 
yeah. And it just was, I, I mean, I could, yeah, I, I was on it on desktop and I just, the first day that I discovered Tumblr, I was on it for like 16 hours a day, every day. What? Since. I mean, it was my entire life. Like I would wake this up. This is your call of duty. I, I just was like, oh my God, this is it. And then I started to get followers on there. Like people started to pay attention to me and, and I started to get attention and I started to realize I was good at finding things and sort of understanding things and talking to people. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And that's I, that's how I met, like, journalists. I mean, I, I don't know if you remember, because we're both old millennials, but, like, you know... That's even, a very generous uh, description of me. Thank well, you. Well, <laughs> when I started, I mean, when I started blogging, people were so hostile to bloggers, especially the traditional media. Oh, uh, yeah, new media versus old media, the first, the first fights. And they were so rude. Like, there was all these panels, like, oh, you know, bloggers consider themselves journalists. And so I was always like, fuck the media. Like, mm. bloggers are journalists. And, like, bloggers are better than journalists, actually, because, like, you know, I, I was a blogger myself, and it just resonated. And there was so much going on in New York that time, too, in, in terms of tech. It was such a hotbed of creativity and and there were all these interesting new products being developed i can only think of foursquare has anything ever else come out what? of new york tons of stuff etsy or tumblr i guess it's tumblr yeah. i mean yeah etsy right yeah. yeah youtube's original like next new networks which was um you know what youtube acquired and kind of eventually merged and became the creator program they they pioneered the, the term creator as we think of it today was in New York. There was a lot happening. Read my book for more. I will, I will. It's a very New York <laughs> defense of tech to make. I know. I mean, well, the thing is, I the Silicon Valley people, it, it, that's always been sort of like a separate path. And what I love about New York tech and LA tech sort of similar too is there's just like a creativity to it and it's a different energy than the... Yeah, it's personality. Hardcore, <laughs> you know, <laughs> skill. Yeah. So. What were you blogging about in those days? Oh God, everything. I mean, I had, I had so many blogs because you could spin up tumblers all the time. I had, well, I had one vegan cooking blog. I used to have my own vegan baking company. Um, and you had a, a vegan baking company. I did. Top, you top banana treats. Top banana treats. Yeah. Well, so everything was made with bananas instead of dairy products? Um, it did, yeah. It was, well, it was dairy free. It was, it was banana bread and banana muffins and bran muffins and things like that. So was that going to be your business at some point? I was just trying to make money. I was so broke. I mean, I, I, I did everything. I worked, I was just doing anything I could to make money. I was babysitting a lot. I was worked at a call center. I was, yeah, was mostly working retail and, and food service jobs. But, um, yeah, I I just started blogs about anything I thought was interesting. I mean, one of my blogs was like a dating blog. I didn't really write about my own dates, but I would interview people about dates uh-huh. and I would um, tell stories about things. And I started a bunch of sort of New York City specific blogs too. But I mean, then I did a bunch of the the single serving blogs, like the fuck yeah era. Do you remember that of Tumblr? No, no. You don't? Are you serious? I mean, I I was never on Tumblr oh in a big God, way. Hamish. Yeah. Okay. I'm so not, there's this... I'm not cool with it. And <laughs> I was never young, so. <laughs> there was this whole era of Tumblr where you would start a blog and it would be like fuck yeah pigs, like if you loved something. Oh, right. at Pigs.tumblr.com. That yeah. it was this like trend on Tumblr. I made so many of those blogs, like dozens of them. And then I started blogs about technology and media and things things that I cared about. A lot of them were submission-based, too. I, I had one where people would send me pictures of their bagels. I worked at a bagel shop, so I love bagels. And, you know, as a New Yorker, it's like my primary food. So, um, <laughs> yeah, so a lot of them were submission-based, which was also an interesting, you know, sort of shift because previously, like when I was on Blogger, you couldn't it, you couldn't easily accept submissions and share them as easily. So how did you find your way from being sort of obsessive on Tumblr and uh, immersed in this world, creating a lot of stuff, aggregating followers, discovering amazing things, to journalism? Well, I mean, so I was getting kind of popular online and I had a decent following and, and influential people were following me and reaching out to me. And so someone at Tumblr, a couple people at Tumblr, like noticed me. Um, also because I made it my goal to get everyone that worked at Tumblr to follow me back on my main blog, which I did achieve, I think, at one point, very briefly. And so they had me into their office, and they're like, what are you, like, who are you, basically? Because they would reach out to bloggers. And um, I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm working, like, a really shitty temp job, and I'm broke, and I don't really know. I just, like, love this stuff. And so um, 
they were like, oh, I mean, you could try to work with brands. Facebook had just launched Facebook pages and they were also trying to do more brand, you know, they were trying to do more brand deals with Tumblr. So they hooked me up and I started to run corporate, like do sort of Tumblr campaigns for corporate companies and Facebook pages for corporate companies. That got me a job at McGarry Bowen, which at the time was like ad week, ad age agency of the year. Uh It was this like creative agency and they were launching a social department. And so they were like, you know, we see you're popular online, which to be popular online back then, it was like you had like 5,000 followers yeah. and you like posted a lot. It was a bit of time. It was so great. And so, yeah, I was like, I mean, yeah, I would love a salaried job. That sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> I was a horrible administrative assistant, which was my temp jobs mostly. And uh, so I was a so I became a social media specialist and uh, at this agency and I was running social campaigns for brands. I worked on Verizon primarily doing a lot of media partnerships mm like social campaigns for like The Voice or whatever and mm-hmm. and phone launches and technology. I also ran the Verizon developer community uh, online. Is that a cool community? No, Verizon and it was very funny because I, so I also tried to work as a front-end developer because I had gone back and done this like what? web development. Yeah, ah. I have a certificate in web development from NYU because I like, you know. Yeah. So all the That's tech how you know people telling us. me, you know, learn to code. I did, <laughs> and I'm bad at it. It's like you have to be detail-oriented in a way that I was not. Yeah, too, I did yeah. make mm-hmm. some shitty, you know, Ruby on Rails, like, web apps at some hackathons. Anyway, so for whatever that reason, they were like, oh, you can run this, like, Android development community, which I, like, had no idea. Like, that's a totally different—okay, sure. Well, this girl, Tulani, was, like, running it before me, and she was really good at it. And I took it over, and I was like, ooh— yeah, I just, I yeah, I was working in social. And my favorite website, I, I love tabloid news, I have to admit it. And my favorite website was the Daily Mail. And I noticed, you know, they didn't have a social presence. And I was like, it would be cool to to work there and like do, like set up a Facebook page. And this guy, Rob, who I knew who had worked at Huffington Post, was able to connect me with the publisher. And I, yeah, I met with the publisher and I was like, hi, I'm a cool 20 something year old in New York and I'm popular online like can I run your Facebook page and he was like sure whatever they <laughs> hired me and and um kind of didn't understand that it was a big role and then I yeah I blew the fa- I mean I, the Daily Mail Facebook page obviously blew up because it was pretty easy I got very good at writing headlines that would do well on Facebook mm. and then that's also I got into Twitter around then and um and then it, and then it, yeah. And then quick, very quickly, the editor and publisher was like, "Oh, sh- this is crazy!" Like Taylor's getting. So I hired this whole team, and I ended up managing the whole entire global oh. social team that I built from scratch. And I was like the youngest woman in senior management at the Daily Mail. Wow. How do you feel about this Daily Mail today? I I read it every day. I know. I mean, look, I, I haven't love... they haven't they taken some shots at you in, in the oh, not too not too I, distant past. I mean, the Daily Mail, though, they're ridiculous, and and I, you know, a lot of it's dubious information on there. I think what you know, what I appreciated about them, and what I appreciate about tabloid news in general, is that it's there's something democratic about it, kind of, and they don't take themselves so seriously. And I think a lot of people in the journalism world put themselves on a really high horse and act like you know. We are the defenders of democracy when a lot of the times they're providing entertainment. Sorry, what's the tagline for the newspaper you work for? Which is true. No, I know. You know what? I shouldn't. It is. I mean, look, journalism, I'm a huge defender of legacy media, too. So I should say that I'm not one of those people that thinks it should totally go away. However, I think that you need to understand that a lot of the time, if you're building a media product, the goal is entertainment as much as informing people. And I think a lot of journalists focus on the informing people and don't think about delivering a really great product that that delights people and, and you know, entertains people. And I think tabloid news does a good job of that. Now, is it corrosive and bad for society in a lot of ways? Undeniably. But I, it taught me, I mean, I, I learned so much about story framing from working there. I think Martin Clark, who I worked for, is a one of the smartest people in media ever. And Who is he? He's the editor-in-chief. Oh. Um, I mean, just a brilliant, brilliant headline writer story. From, like, I remember one time there was this story of this whale that had returned. There was a whale in, in the Hudson River, and it had left, and it was spotted again. Do whales usually go in the H- no, Hudson River? No, and that's why okay, it was yeah. a news story. Okay, okay. Anyway, and, and the headline 
that was written, I think I had written on Facebook or something, or one of my, my team did, but it was like, oh, you know, had the whale return or, you know, the whale spotted for the second time. And Martin was like, no, it's it's the whale that can't stay away. And like, you, you need to tell a story and you need to frame it. And I just learned a lot through that in terms of What is the secret to a good Daily Mail headline? Well, Daily Mail headlines are like five sentences long sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but I was writing them for Facebook and for social. So I, I think the important thing is just to like catch people's attention and get them into the story. I don't think you can inform people and, in, in, you know, unless you generate interest. And Again, I'm not I'm not defending, you know, the worst parts of the tabloid journalism industry. I think it's horrible in so many ways. But disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. Get to the fun stuff. I mean, I just I, I, I learned, it was a fantastic first job in media. And I, I'm so glad that it was my entry point into media because I learned a lot. Yeah. There can't be that many people who have worked for the Daily Mail and the New York Times. No. And the Atlantic. <laughs> I don't think so. But and head of a vegan baking company. Yeah, I know. I've done a lot. But there should, you know... I just think that, again, there's so much credentialism in legacy media. And when you say something like that, it's because a lot of these places consider it beneath them to hire somebody. And the truth is, is when you're young, you're not necessarily, you know, you're working for a company, you're learning, you're not, especially back then, like, I mean, I I did take it to heart in the sense that, like, when I ran the so- those social channels, like, I thought it was sort of my job to show the best of the paper and the original reporting, which they do do some of, and not amplify the hate and the bad stuff. I think we met each other more than 10 years ago in Baltimore. I think you were working for The Hill at that point. I was. What happened there? Like, did you go from Daily Mail to The Hill? No, I went, well, I I just, I, I realized I wanted to be a reporter and I wanted to write about the stuff that I write about currently, it was very, very hard to convince editors to let me do that uh, full time. It was it was impossible. I tried to get hired at BuzzFeed like four times. I remember pitching stories about YouTube stars and and YouTube and all this stuff because I was when I was popular on Tumblr, I had sort of connected with a bunch of other early YouTubers and. Yeah, I mean, the editors would be like, "Oh, it's oh, the site for cat videos," you know. Like there was this dismissal of the internet, and I was like, you know, I want to write about the internet from the perspective of a user. And I think that there was this the rise of gadget blogging in, you know, that came with the rise of blogs in the late 2000s and um, sites like Gizmodo and stuff. And I felt like there should be that, that equivalent of, of from covering tech from the user side, but for social products and software. And there, there just like wasn't that role really. I mean, Jenna Wortham did some of it, but it was just, it wasn't a mature beat. And so, and I was so good at social so I th- and obviously it paid better. And so I was I just blogged on the side and I, I wrote on the side. And um, Cooper Fleischman, who was an editor at The Daily Dot at the time, uh, was really encouraging and was like, just keep writing and just write the stories that you want to see. And um, maybe you'll do it full time. Maybe you won't. But I'm very good at social and very good at strategy. So I thought I'll just do that. And then um, th- so, I yeah. So anyway, I went uh Basically, I mean, essentially, I went from the Daily Mail. I took a year off. I was consulting, doing a lot of stuff for brands, also still working part-time at the Daily Mail. After I left the Daily Mail, I stayed on as a consultant for a while and managed a lot of hiring and stuff there. And then, um, yeah, and then Nitsan Zimmerman, who had worked at Gawker, who's just an internet... Traffic monster. Yeah. I mean, I had always been so jealous of his ability to... Yeah, manipulate traffic on the internet and, and really understand the mechanics of the internet. And he was at the Hill as like VP of audience or something. And he was like, do you want to come here and run social and and sort of new, you know, startup? Like that was this pivot to video era. So, um, you know, Facebook Lives and all this stuff. I launched their Snapchat show. So I don't want to turn this into a big, like, let's read Taylor's yeah, CV. Yeah, let's go but, through my LinkedIn yeah, and all yeah, my yeah. 40 random jobs. But, but you ended up like going to uh, The Atlantic, uh, New York Times, you at The Washington Post now. It seems like the sort of first stage of your career, you, it's much more an extension of you being a Tumblr person, you enjoying writing online, you being a blogger. From the Atlantic onwards, it's you being sort of, I don't know if it's you committing yourself to this or people pushing you into this way to like be more of a traditional reporter. Do you, do you feel that tension? Do, do you feel that as a transition point for you? Yeah. I Well, so after The Hill, it was, it was somewhat after Charlottesville, I covered, you know, I was covering a lot and... I think I just was like, you know what? I actually think I'm a good reporter. Like, fuck all these legacy people that sort of 
said that people from the internet couldn't be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just thought I'm going to be a, a reporter. And, and then when I started writing, I mean, my stories were blowing up increasingly, I would say, over the years. But it was really 2017, for many reasons, as I write about my book, that things cracked and, and my beat became very prominent and my stories started to really take what, off. What was the cracking point? So that was the year of the adpocalypse on YouTube. What's that? So basically, like, it, it was just this very chaotic year on the internet. Obviously, it was the, the year that Trump took office. So that was crazy. Yeah, I forgot about that guy. Yeah. yeah. And then um, there was this Wall Street Journal story on PewDiePie that got, that sort of set off this wave of demonetization on YouTube. It was also mm. the year that Logan Paul vlogged a dead body. Oh, yeah. It, it was it was basically... This feels like yesterday, actually, now that you mentioned <laughs> it. It was yeah. a while ago. Yeah. But, it, but it was this year where people suddenly started to look at the content creator industry and the internet and be like, whoa, there's actually a lot going on here that we've we as in traditional media have ignored and not taken seriously and dismissed. Yeah. There's tons of money in this space suddenly. And it was the year that like Gen Z really started to come of age and exert, I think, influence online. Right. So there was this new audience and appetite for these stories in a way that there wasn't previously. Yeah. And you were the like the Gen Z internet culture whisperer to a, like a class of people who otherwise had difficult difficulty accessing that culture. You were like you did Taylor Lorenz's name was on the lips of anyone who was thinking about media or thinking about like culture and brands and advertising and what are the kids up to these days? Because I remember this as a person who was there thinking about Taylor Lorenz. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it's well, people always before were like, oh, she's a millennial, a millennial, you know, I just remember people being dismissive about me as a millennial being too young. Like, you know, I yeah. think especially as a woman that I was identifying myself as a tech journalist since 2010 and -hmm. people were horrible online. I mean, Mm -hmm. people that I know now that I really love, but they were horrible. They were just like, oh, she's not a real tech journalist. She she wants to write about YouTubers. You've come through that journey in your career. You remember what the good old fashioned internet was like, which certainly wasn't perfect, but it was a different place. And then you've burst into the public consciousness for at least a certain part of the world that you and I live in, in 2017. There's all these things rumbling in the culture. And suddenly, or maybe it took a little bit actually from 2017, but people start having strong opinions about you. Yeah. Well, it was really, I was breaking a lot of news. I love scoops. Although I haven't, I've been so busy with my book the past couple of months, but like normally I'm always. You're doing a good job of plugging this book, Taylor. <laughs> I mean, I gotta do it. I, no, but I, I, I love news and I love breaking news and I love being the first to write something. There's also almost no competition. So I was able to just like dominate the beat in a way that I think would be very hard today. I mean, you couldn't do it today. There's so many more reporters on it, thankfully. I'm writing about people that have millions of followers and live for internet drama. I mean, this is how they make their livings like and monetize themselves. So, you know, of course, of course, I'm going to get attention. And I think it's about kind of riding that. I, I would say my work wasn't really politicized in the same way until 2021, when I think a lot of these people who had really for years dismissed my beat and been very hostile to my coverage suddenly realized that they were on the wrong side of history. And, you know, there's this whole ecosystem that is really powerful economically and culturally, and they wanted a piece of that. And I think when they felt like, oh, shit, now we have to deal with Taylor Lorenz. It's like there was a hostility there. So did you not feel bad vibes until 2021? Oh, I mean, always bad vibes. I mean, I covered dozens of protests in 2017, including, as I mentioned, Charlottesville Mm -hmm. and a a bunch of other horrible events. But I don't know. I mean, you know, it's so funny because when I was, you know, somebody was asking me about being swatted or whatever and, and how horrible it is. And I've dealt with definitely the worst of online harassment. But even before the like Tucker Carlson fans, I mean, I had Jake Paul fans uh, try and swap me and leak my number. And why were they doing that? Because I wrote critically about Jake Paul. Like Jake Paul had this idiotic plan to stop school shootings that was m- just moronic, and I wrote about that. And you know, it's just like people like to think that there's this only this one side of of the internet that's dark, and it's the politicized sar- side. But the fandoms fandoms are insane, and. You know, I think everyone deals with that. Um, You know, I have a friend who's a pop music critic and, you know, has writes critically about an artist now. And you have these millions of fans that will fight back and try and destroy your life over it. So Mm -hmm. 
this, these are just the mechanics of the internet now. And as somebody that writes about the internet, I think I'm just dealing with it a lot. So you got an early taste of that before the um, before you've been turned into a punching bag by people who oppose whatever they think you represent. And this is, I guess, sort of pandemic pandemic onwards, 2021 onwards. Why did you keep going? Like, why do you decide that the cost was worth it to keep doing this sort of reporting? Because it's like, I love my job and I don't care, really. I mean, fundamentally, what those people have done and I think what people do on the Internet is they kind of like build up other people into characters online. And it's this like crazy soap opera every day. And I think that, you know, people, especially people on the far right, have you know, they make me into a character because it gives them opposition. It is just classic influencer tactics, right? Like you are going to make this other YouTuber and you're going to have this feud and then that galvanizes your audience. And so I think, I, I mean, I just think like I don't take it that seriously. That doesn't mean that I don't take online harassment seriously. I think that like these platforms need to address the really toxic sort of dynamics of it all. But I'm not going to like stop doing something I love and have done for like almost 15 years because some like trolls in a corner, you know, want to yell about me. Like I just I think the way to the way to dismantle that, too, is to expose it and to to talk about the reasons why. Why are these people doing this? Like the stories that I write about online influence, that that is what they're that, that's what they want. They want online influence. Right. And when they attack me, it's often in pursuit of that. And I think exposing those tactics and kind of their motivations takes a lot of air out of it. Was there any time when you noticed a change in the intensity of those kind of dynamics? Yeah, I mean, I think the pandemic, I think since I think it shoved everyone online and suddenly I felt like everyone was in my world all of a sudden where like I had spent, I mean, I spent most of my day online and and have for a long time. And I it felt like, whoa, suddenly everyone showed up to the party, which was really exciting, but also... I think had some crazy consequences. When you say online harassment and getting harassment, yeah, from people. people think. By the way, harassment is mean tweets or something, which I don't give a shit about. I don't even see those. I, I have like my notifications only on mutuals. I'm talking about stalking and and swatting my parents. I'm talking about harassing my family members, getting my family members fired from their jobs, trying to get the children of my family members taken away. I'm talking about, you know, doxing to an obscene level. Like it's, it's a lot of the stuff that bothers me most is the stuff that's happened to the people around me. Because I don't care. It's like, I've, so what? You know, like, okay, being swatted sucks, but like... What, what, what happens when you get swatted? The police come and then you're like... I mean, the thing is in L.A., ironically, and, and I deal with the LAPD, that I have a good relationship with the detective there that's fantastic and has helped me through a lot of Did you of think stuff. when you're getting into journalism that you're going to have to start having relationships with the detectives <laughs> at the police departments in whatever city you live in? I mean, I, I just... I've seen these dynamics play out among influencers for a long time. So, you know, streamers... This is like, look at someone like Hassan Piker has dealt with, you know, if you're on the Internet, th these are things the you know, these are ways that the Internet can be weaponized. And that's why it's really understand. It's really important to have people in power who understand that. And they don't. I mean, and, and it's it's to the bad actors benefit to frame, quote unquote, online harassment as just a bunch of mean stuff, which, by the way, can also be terrible and hurtful. And and I, and no one should be exposed to that stuff either if they don't want to. That's why I'm a huge advocate of allowing users to kind of control their experience. But my tolerance for all that stuff is really high. And I also, again, I love tabloid news. I love the theater of it all. I don't really care, you know, when Tucker yells about me or whatever. It's like, okay, what it's I kind of don't take it very seriously. But again, it's it's the it's the ripple effects and it's those it's a lot of the the harm that's been done to people around me that's frustrating. What do your family members think about it all? They're very cool. Like they're very amazing about it, honestly. Like, I mean, I think my parents are proud of me. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> uh, you know, they're very offline people. So they're just, you know, they all, a lot of them Does work. it seem foreign to them then that this, yeah, this online culture they, is happening? They work in an industry that's a physical labor industry and not, you know, it's it's a totally different world to them. Except my sister, my one of my sisters works in uh, PR, so she kind of understands it. But um, yeah, I mean, I but, but I feel really bad. I mean, one of my close friends... Um, you know, was was harassed and threatened and just for just for being associated with me. That's happened a, a, a lot. And I feel I always feel bad. I, sometimes it feels like 
Well, when I was really depressed in like 2020, I was like, I, I felt like everything I was touching was poison where like anybody associated with me would get this horrible vitriol. And I felt so guilty about it. And now I'm, I don't feel guilty about it. I'm like, guys, I'm so sorry. This is a fact of life. Don't tag me in your Instagram photo unless you want some mean messages. Do you have any possible sympathetic interpretation of what your worst enemies are glomming onto when they attack you? Yeah. I mean, I think that we live in this hyper-politicized environment and there's a lot to be angry about. I mean, look at this country. <laughs> it, I think I think whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, you can see that we have huge systemic problems in so many areas. And I think there's differing, you know, thoughts on how to address those problems. But I do think that most Americans can agree our country is fucked up in a lot of serious ways. So I think... I think that people kind of, again, build me into this character where so often, I mean, I would say 90% of the views that people sort of ascribe to me, it's like I've never even spoken about these issues, right? But people just make you into this person that, that you know, and make up a story about you and tell that story to their audience, again, to have that straw man and to galvanize their own online communities. So you think Tucker Carlson, when he's shouting about you, making an example of you to, I don't know, rally his base or whatever it is, doesn't believe what he's saying. Oh, I think he absolutely believes it. But I think it's, again, it's 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 this making this enemy of the other and kind of picking a target to rally your audience around. That's a really powerful thing. And I think people do that in politics all the time. I was a political science major and I had a couple political, I thought maybe I would work in politics. And it's very much that. I mean, it's very much like, distinguishing yourself almost by putting up this other person as something really bad and dangerous. And so that's why you need to vote for me or whatever. And I just think that happens on the internet every day. And I think most people, if they talked to me, would find me to be extremely different than the I mean, you know me. Like, That's why we got you on the show, Taylor. <laughs> but it's this desire, and I think we all fall victim to it. I mean, sometimes I see stuff online, and I'm like, fuck that person. I was just about to ask you, do you, do you find yourself an observer mostly of this culture or a participant in it? Well, I participate in the internet. I think you can't write about the internet effectively without being a user. I think that's true of most tech products. I think to write about a technology or cultural system, you it's you got to be in there. You can't just be totally removed. So I don't mind getting in there. Um, but I do, I mean, again, I, I don't, I, I think people put a lot of words in my mouth about stuff that I've never said anything on or have actually pretty nuanced opinions on just generally. And so, um, I mean, content moderation is a big one. I think I, 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 as somebody that has dealt with the worst of the internet, I have a lot of opinions on content moderation. And for whatever reason, people are online always, oh, she's trying to censor us or something. Mm -hmm. And it's like, are you on drugs? I've like, seen them say that. But you you have a pro-free speech I'm, stance. I'm so obscenely pro-free First of all, like, how how could I be a journalist without the First Amendment? I mean, and also, I've... I've That's always, a controversial position for some people. They seem to separate freedom of the press from freedom of speech at the moment. Yeah, well, I think a lot of powerful people don't want a free press. I mean, that's a mm -hmm. huge, that's the huge problem, right, is that we see them. And look, I get it. There's huge problems with the press that we have. I think we have a very broken, extremely deranged media environment that I'm very sympathetic. Sometimes I heard, I was listening to some podcast a while ago. I think it was like Bology or somebody was talking about it. I didn't know who was talking, and I was like, oh, I totally agree with that. And then it, they were saying who it was, and I was like, oh, wait a minute. That guy's crazy. But I but I agree. Um, I agree with, you know, I agree with some criticisms because I think as somebody that's worked in the media, like, I mean, you have to be self-critical. And I think that the only way to improve the media is to be realistic about its shortcomings. Do you think the media is sufficiently self-critical? No. No. I don't, I don't think so at all. I think a lot of... Journalists are, are very, um, again, putting themselves on a pedestal. And I think that that is not our job as reporters. And I think that we should be among the people, among the users. And, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I don't, that's what I loved about blogging, you know, and, and what I loved about blogger culture. There wasn't that kind of power trip that it feels like some people get into media for. I think it's so important to have freedom of expression. I think it's the most important thing as somebody who has 
constantly getting, you know, community guidelines violations on Instagram and stuff. It's frustrating. It's frustrating. Are you, you violate the guidelines? Yes. I mean, we all in- what are you, unintentionally. What are you doing? Are you... I'm posting nothing. I'm posting jokes. I'm not 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 anything offensive. I just, mm. you know, I, I think I said something. I mean, just saying I, I got a meme taken down. I said something I want to kill myself, you know, just joking, obviously. And it's like, oh, threats of violence or whatever, you know, content removed. Uh-huh. I have drawn, like, Instagram... You know, I, I just think a lot of users, I think a lot of the media only uses Twitter and yeah. they don't understand the broader the Instagram is bigger. web and also <laughs> yeah. that Instagram is like far stricter in terms of speech. And I get why. I mean, they have gotten in a lot of trouble for a lot of bad stuff. And I, I just, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a much more complicated problem than it's made to seem. Well, so on back to the observer versus participant thing, I am not as online as you. I don't tweet as much or I don't do anything. I don't have all, I'm not on Instagram, blah, blah, blah. And yet, there's things I've said online in the past that I wish I didn't say. Like the system's almost set up to make you be rash, to act impulsively, to say things that you wish you could take back. And I'm wondering to what extent do you, like have you had that feeling are there things that you wish you didn't say? Are there ways that you've behaved online that you wish you oh my God, didn't behave like? Of course. Like? What kind of online person has never fucked up on the internet? I mean, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think we all do. I'm trying to think of specific. I mean, there's so many examples. I'm you like, don't have to go into examples. I just like wouldn't. Yeah. Not, I mean, I think feel like, like that. I think again for me, the online like the internet is is my world, but it's also an escape, and it's also like I like to debate and kind of have conversations and. I will, I'm a very opinionated person and I change my opinions too all the time. And so I think, you know, there's things that I've said that I ultimately ended up changing my mind on, or, you know, I definitely could have been kinder sometimes, you know, the internet rewards drama. And I've sometimes been like, fuck this person. Um, When ultimately that's, they're actually pretty cool. And I've had that experience many times too, been like, oh damn, I really like, misjudge that person and I think people misjudge me all the time right this is just part of being an internet user and yeah again that's why I think it's also I, I think actually permanent feeds of content are not a good idea um, I've had my tweets set to auto delete for a long time and I I just generally think the idea of ephemerality is better like that's what I loved about Snapchat's original sort of promise um, I think it's very weird to have this like static uh, public record of everything that you've ever said and done and posted like online, which is how we all live now. I just think that we need to have more room for evolution. And I think there's so much context collapse. We see that all the time online, right? Where some one thing gets taken and put into a different context and, you know, misinterpreted. And I think that's frustrating. And I'm sure I've done that to other people too. I'm sure I've taken something and mm-hmm. that person's like, oh, that's not the context. You know, it's just, this is what happens. And I think it's not a great system. Yeah. It's a, it magnifies our imperfections. Yeah. Which I think social media in general, the way that it's structured now incentivizes a lot of that type of behavior. And, you know, it obviously incentivizes discord and stuff. I think we're in this very weird inflection point right now which is what my book is about. <laughs> but um, it is it is about sort of like, you know, the past 20 years of, of sort of getting everyone online. Um, and I think I think the more time that people spend online, the more they'll realize the flaws in these products and really seek to build better systems. And some of these conflicts that have uh, arisen around you or that you've been involved in with certain characters on the internet. And some of these people I know personally as well, like Glenn Greenwald, is a, an adversary of yours. He he decided that. I've never even tweeted at him once in my entire life. Interesting. I don't think. Maybe I actually, I shouldn't say that so definitively. I probably have, but but I never, I don't, he's, it's a very one-sided feud with him. Mm-hmm. So I was, I, was thinking, I was just wondering, like, do you, do you think that you might meet these people in real life and have a different relationship with them than exists on Twitter, for example. I think they would meet me and be quite surprised at the... But they're not interested in in how I am. They're interested in building me into a character that they can then use to, you know, boost their own audience up. You you have to have a... You know, it's 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 it really benefits you on the internet and every YouTuber and streamer and influencer knows this, to have a clear kind of enemy and to put someone up as a as a you know, a person that, that that represents everything wrong in the world. Yeah, well, the point I was trying to, I was going to make 
and I'm figuring this out as I go along through life, but also as I say this out loud here, because I think there are good people who do bad things and that these systems make us behave in ways that are not the best reflections of who we are as people. And I think in some cases, I think it's probably right that people are using internet characters that they've manifested themselves to some extent as a way to build up their own audience through being in opposition to those characters. And I think there are people who are, have a certain set of principles and people have them despite you know, a range of political opinions, despite where they might be on the um, political spectrum. And they're searching for examples of where those principles are violated so they can yeah. show that this is why they have these principles, which can lead to singling out of opponents uh, or you know the creation of opponents and then the characterization of those opponents. And then through a system like Twitter, which thrives on conflict yeah. and rewards people who turn drama rap to the maximum and rewards you for not seeing nuance, for bulldozing nuance. And at the end of the day, it looks like two people who just are so far apart they could never sit in a room together when actually the real-life reality is they're not so different. They could actually have a conversation. I'm wondering if you agree with that. If you, is, there any, is there any sense in that to you? I think a lot of this is one-sided, and I think that, that, I think that the especially the far right on the Internet, I mean – the far the far right has always been so effective at leveraging online influence and the internet and the mechanics of the internet and more so than the far left of course the far left i don't know what they're doing but it's not very impactful unfortunately for them you know i think that that the far right i mean it's since gamergate which i think was really the playbook for a lot of this stuff they've just been very effective at building these movements and um, sort of pushing anti-progressivism online through certain tactics. And again, that's what I mean by a lot of this is one-sided, where it's a very, very sort of coordinated and um, I don't mean coordinated in the sense of like people in a group chat coordinating, but just in, in terms of like, you know, they they have clear goals with what they're doing and they seek to achieve those goals. And I think they're very effective at the way that they can weaponize the internet to attack certain people. It's also you have to remember that these platforms are built to amplify certain things, right? And they recognize that and feed into that very well. They're very adept at, you know, these types of hate campaigns. And um, I guess it, you know, I, one thing I don't like is the false equivalence between a networked hate campaign and people fighting back against that hate campaign, right? Which I do think sometimes happens online. And I'm not talking about, you know, specific people in the, in any of these instances. You know, a big problem with how the media covers online harassment, which the media sucks at covering online harassment. Like, they truly are the worst. And I made the mistake of talking to a reporter about it once, and I will never do it again, because I think they just are terrible. What, what was that case? Oh, I well, I talked to this MSNBC woman who was literally took every single word I said out of context, totally misrepresented me badgered me for I mean I don't want to get into it for hours and then clipped I mean, it was a horrible and, and is this the one is this one where you're showing crying on yeah, camera and which people by the way is totally you. misrepresented I mean could not have misrepresented so me you were angry at NSNBC for that I mean I think it was it was horrible I think what they did was was absolutely it was basically the opposite of journalism in terms of you know what you should seek to achieve when covering an, an issue like this but it was a really you know I'm glad I went through it because it was a really important lesson of being exploited by the media and having somebody take stuff completely out of context completely out of context and totally misrepresent you, you know, I'm sure you, you as, as no, no idea. No idea. <laughs> you, once you've been on the other side of it, it's like, oh, damn, mm -hmm. this is why people hate the media. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I do think it gave me a lot of empathy and it really helped inform my reporting process. Do you wish you could take that experience back? Uh, no, I'm, I'm pretty glad again, because I think I learned, I think it gave me a lot of empathy for stuff and it made me a lot more skeptical of what I see of people. I mean, I think I, you, I was, you always have a level of skepticism and understanding as a reporter, but I mean, it was a valuable experience. Do I wish I did it? I, I kind of wish I didn't do it, but then I wouldn't have this knowledge. And I do think it was valuable ultimately. And who cares if I did it? You know, I mean, when the media covers online harassment, it's a lot of false equivalences. It's a lot of 
um, you know, there's a clear instigator in a lot of it, and but it's framed as a both sides. And especially with me, I've noticed that, you know, people write up these things of like the feud between, and I'm like, there is no feud. This person found me, decided to make me a, a target and started going after me randomly because it's expedient for them in some way. So it's a little dishonest to write as if it's like a two sides thing, especially when I don't respond. Right, you know? right. And to depersonalize it, I don't want to make it all just about you because yeah. this is like a cultural phenomenon. This is a thing happening in our culture today that we're all grappling with and trying to figure out how to get to a more peaceful place with. Do you think that's do you think that these kinds of behaviors, these online behaviors that are harmful, are limited to one political position? Do you think it's no, like I the left I, is immune from this stuff? I think people centrists are not immune from it either. I mean like no, I think I think these are. Is it just that humans suck and we should never have been put into this? No, cold no, no. Game but I will media? say I do think that again, since GamerGate, the far right has has been able to very successfully weaponize the internet in a way that actually centrists and liberals so have the, not. So the, there are people um, on the right who are not far right necessarily. Who sort of sure. thoughtful internet critics yeah. from the right who will say, "What are you talking about? The left is has mastered." Uh, well, the turning, left the has a different... turning Twitter into a, like a grievance complex or this sort of stuff. Uh, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. Maybe there's some shades of yes and no. But you know, are, do you have any do you have any sympathy to people who make those kinds of cases? Sure, of course, of course. I mean, I think we've all seen examples of this. I'm not saying it doesn't happen all over the political spectrum. I'm just saying that the right is more effective at it. I think. I think ultimately, a lot of the stuff that happens in other sort of factions online never has. It's it's a different type. It's a different type of thing. It's a different, yeah. It's it's a different. I'm trying to describe like I'm trying to think like how to describe. I've already gotten canceled by every faction online, so I'm not worried <laughs> about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I think also when I say far right, I mean far right. I mean extremists. I mean people like Nick Fuentes and you know, not conservatives. Of which I mean, I have friends all over the political spectrum. And, from Connecticut. There must be some conservatives in oh Connecticut. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, there's, I don't know what Connecticut is, but yes, it's, I mean, I, I would say especially, I mean, there's, I have a lot of close friends that are libertarians that have very strong, that are also very pro-free speech, pro, you know, civil liberties. And, you know, I, I wouldn't, I, I'm not looping those people. And when I say far right, I mean like the Milo Yiannopoulos and the, the, sort of the troll types. Mm-hmm. The, and I don't, I don't, I just don't think that there's the equivalent on the left because I don't think these platforms facilitated. I mean, I think that that group was so effective at getting on the internet seriously and recognizing influencer culture and recognizing that content creators are very much the new media and kind of effectively leveraging that. Whereas liberals and leftists just don't have that power. And also you have to, you know, there are a lot of... Well, far- I guess I'd say the liberals have the mainstream media. I'm trying to yeah, occupy oh, right, their, right, right. Their I'm talking more right, right. I could see that. I can see that like understanding of it. But I'm just talking about like internet dy- dynamics. Like there's not a lot of like centrist influencers. I will say like I, I mean one thing I love about the internet and, and covering these different uh, contingencies is is all of the. I mean again from a user behavior standpoint, I think that the norms and the user behaviors are all like overlap in a lot of ways, but are different in different ways. And I think. I mean, I support people's rights and and civil liberties and, again, like all this stuff. And I think that it's cool to see people use the Internet for progress and to bring more, you know, freedom to all of us. It's I think it's that's what the goal of the Internet should be. Right. It should be a liberating force. I think I'm a very much a techno optimist. I believe in the power of technology. Still. Yes, I love I mean, I love technology. And I think that the, that is how we are going to build a better world is through technology. It's just we just have to make sure that, you know, it's it's who's who's in charge of those tech products and how they're being shaped. And and I think social media has been very bad in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think we're going to look back at this last decade in particular as a time when we made as a society a lot of missteps with social media. And hopefully it's the prelude to a different era where we've learned some things and are building more thoughtful thoughtful systems and designing more thoughtful systems. Yeah, I think we're going to look back and just be like, ooh, that was crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I can't believe that you used to be able to post to the entire world and say all this stuff. Like, yeah. But it, it's it's such a short time. I mean, especially when you think of, like, Twitter in 2013. It was so different. Like, the modern yeah. internet that we're, that we're thinking of is is very recent. You know, I, yeah. I've been looking, obviously I think about this all the time, I've been looking at it as well, and I 
did a bit of research recently. It was like, obvious, this is not a big insight, but it was like 2016 was a really big year. 2016, Twitter shifted from chrono, basic chronological feed to algorithmic feed. Face, uh, sorry, Instagram did the same thing like two months later. In the meantime, around the same time, Trump announced his candidacy for president. And so there's a lot of uh, big cultural things, like storms brewing there all at once. And then, you know, I don't know, people were starting to get discontent with social media a little bit on the fringes and in the intellectual classes pre-2016. But the backlash against Facebook didn't even really start until 2017, Cambridge mm-hmm. Analytica kind of stuff. And, you know, we've got to blame someone for Trump being elected. Let's blame Facebook. And then no one called Twitter a house site back then. No one called, talked about doom scrolling back then. But from 2016 until now, 2023, it seems to be accepted logic and wisdom that these places are house sites. And that they, and so I wonder if something was turning around then. Is this, is this the way you view it? Yeah, I think algorithmic feeds and in, in the way that the algorithms uh, reward certain types of content has been really horrible and corrosive and bad. Let me jump in and say, by the way, because I keep getting told off for making this too shorthand. Algorithms are just equations, right? Algorithms themselves are neutral. It's how they're used. Yeah. That's the that's problem. So when the, an algorithm is used to maximize attention or generate uh, or like elevate conflict and contention, that's when the problems start happening. Exactly. Yeah. It's not like ban all algorithms. It's again, it's just figuring out what is your algorithm optimized for and is that a positive thing or a negative thing ultimately. Do you see any cooling off in this in these kinds of social media oriented culture wars? Well, I think, I mean, I think culture war is kind of a shorthand for like political struggle maybe and and debates around those things. And I don't think that that's going away anytime soon. I think we have these big issues and we're seeing a huge, huge rollback in a lot of rights um, that you and I grew up with taking for granted. So that's kind of, you know, I don't think people are going to stop making those big issues online. But I do think people are retreating more into spaces where they can control their environment. Um, I've written about the rise of like sort of discord and group chats. And I I just think people Mm -hmm. are trying to limit their exposure. And that doesn't mean that they're never going to dip into the public internet, but it's like giving, I think people want more range. Do you think that's a good trend? Yeah. Yeah. I think having it so that everyone default posts publicly to the entire world is crazy. (laughs) Uh, We should probably not have that Mm -hmm. and like make it so that things are more ephemeral, make it so that that you can really control your environment and who you want to speak to and make it easier for people to, to for you to find the audience that's interested in that's interested in what you have to say and doesn't just get sucked into your haters. You told me once that you like to use Twitter to shout at people about COVID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you are very active and very opinionated on COVID. And I'm wondering why. Yeah. Well, so I'm extremely high risk and immunocompromised. And I think that it's really important to remember that we're in an ongoing pandemic that a lot of people are still dying from every week. And I've lost so many people that I love to COVID and people I care about have been permanently you know, disabled by COVID, had horrible things happen to them. Um, and I think that it's just really important to not forget about that experience because I think there's a lot of suffering in the world. That I mean, this is something that is very personal to me and that I care about a lot. And I just would feel horrible being silent about it. And I think it's a, we're normalizing a, a level of mass death and disability that's a problem. And again, as somebody that believes in technology, I think that we have the solutions to solve this. We have the solutions to purify air and make things safe and have rapid testing or UV lights everywhere, you know, that disinfect the air. It's just a matter of political will. I think we need to talk about these things in order to fix them. And I think, I think you know, COVID has been intentionally politicized in, in this way, which is really bad because it shouldn't be. It's a virus and viruses are not, you know, it's, it's like we should all agree that we want to be healthier as a society and um, take care of each other and not forget that vulnerable people's lives matter. How do you think 10, 20 years from now, we might look back at this pandemic and the effects it had on the culture? especially in the ways it intersected with social media? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. Well, I, I think I was reading a lot about the, um, you know, the flu pandemic earlier in the, the last Spanish century, flu. the Spanish flu. And um, just the, first of all, it's horrifying the like long-term health effects that that, that ended up causing. And I think we need a better healthcare system uh, in this country. Our healthcare system is so fucked up. 
Uh, So it'd be great if a pandemic could make us maybe address some of those issues. But I think, I mean, one thing that the pandemic did is especially in those early days, is shove everyone online and and put everyone in these online spaces in a way that they hadn't been before. And I don't know if that was the most healthy thing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was kind of like, you know, for... It's probably the worst thing that could have happened, actually. Yeah, it was terrible. But but it was... I, I, I The silver lining is that I think... I do think for a moment, especially in the beginning, and I was in New York, you know, initially when, when the pandemic hit, like, you did see this camaraderie and you did see this caring about each other, right? Like, after a disaster and sort of wanting to make the world a better place. And then, of course, everyone was like, ah, oh, never mind, I want to go back to shopping and fuck all the, you know, vulnerable people. But it's like, no, I, I do think that, like, <laughs> we should try and get back there. And I do think that the internet can connect us in amazing ways. And and that's good. I, I mean, I spend a, a lot of time online and a lot of time because of my health situation. I, online is my life for certain periods of time where I can't go out into the real world. And I've always felt like the on you know, the online world is just as real as the physical one, if not more. And I think that COVID did force a lot of people to recognize that as well and and not sort of think of the internet is like a secondary world. Mm-hmm. Do you think this is no judgment, honestly, uh, mm-hmm. in, involved in this question? But how effective do you think yelling about the stuff on social media is? Does it make? Does it well, make I don't the difference? Think it's yelling. I think I, I do think it's very effective. Sorry, I was using the words you said before. So I, yeah, uh, expressing yourself in these, expressing your joking. opinions in these ways. Um, no, I think it's really important. I mean, I have a big audience, and I think with an audience comes a responsibility. If you have an audience and you don't use your platform, then why the fuck do you have a platform? You know, I have a platform because I want to share my opinions and draw attention to things that I care about. Taylor, have you ever considered writing a book? <laughs> Funny you should ask, Hamish. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, my book is out this fall. Can you tell us the title and what it's about? It's called Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. And it's about the rise of the online creator industry. I would say it's kind of a history of of how, you know, we all, th- this sort of social media creator industry arose, but, um, and, and it's a history of these platforms in a way, but from the user side. I cover tech, as I've said many times, from the user side. And mm-hmm. so I think there's been a lot of corporate histories written about Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, everything, which has been fantastic. And those books are great, but I wanted to cover kind of a look at how these big influential users shaped the platforms, shaped our online experience, and built this multi-million dollar industry. Got any uh, juicy stuff in that book? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm not a reporter that can save scoops very well. Like, if I have (laughs) news, like, I need it on the website immediately. Mm -hmm. So, but there's some stuff I think people will find interesting. And it's so funny, I've I've sent it to a couple people and people are like, oh my God, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. What was the act of writing the book like for you, given your work is done in such different ways. Yeah. Well, it was so hard because, of course, I started it. Like, I got this book deal and then, like, started it, like, end of 2020. Like, 20, it was... it was Like 100 years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was like, you know, the pandemic was raging. This is, like, pre-vaccine. I was getting insane. The, the harassment stuff was, like, turned up to 11. I'm trying to write this book. I was um, helping to produce a documentary for the New York Times at the time and had a full-time job. So I was like out of my mind and uh, we'll never do that again, basically. Mm. But it was fun to get to like zoom out. I just, I wrote so much. Are you proud of it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, every reporter, it's like you're always self-critical, but I just hope, I think there was so much, especially in 2021, when all these people started to talk about the creator economy, there was such a revision, uh, there was such a revision of history. And I mean, total revision, like where they were just writing people out. And it's like so many pioneers of this industry were women, were weird people that were marginalized in a lot of ways and were shut out of traditional systems. Who are some examples? Um, I mean, just even, you know what I was just thinking of uh, yesterday, because I was fact-checking this part as um, the Adam Boehner, the Taizan Day, Chocolate Rain. Oh, I met that dude. Yeah, he's awesome. But it's just so funny. Like he was such an unlikely kind of hero and like 4chan made a lot of that success for him. They kind of like took him on as this like beacon that they wanted to make it popular. And, um, you know, again, it was this just these examples of these types of people. This was pre before being an influencer was like cool or a thing. So the people that were getting into the internet were just like true creative souls. And I love that. And it was fun to kind of chart the evolution of this industry and some of the interesting people within it and what they went through. I think like, I mean, 
I wrote a lot about Julia Allison in my book. I think I think a lot of what women went through on the internet, especially like over a decade ago, it's like, oh my God, how have we not fixed these problems? So yeah, I think it I think it's like a trip down memory lane. Like if you've spent time online the past 20 years, I think that you will appreciate this book because it's 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 very much like a personal history for myself as well. And I think all of us that have come up through this this crazy world. Yeah, I'd go to, I think I said this just last week, actually. But it, like, I'd go as far to say is that social media, whether we like it or not, is kind of acting like the operating system for culture at the moment. And everything else, the Washington Post included, um, Substack to a certain extent included, although we're trying to fix that, are like apps built on top of that operating system. And even like universities, uh, social institutions. In yeah, rant. <laughs> I totally agree with you. No, I do. I, and I think it's... I think we need to look I think when we look back at at the history of the past 20 years and we think about how tech products are shaped there's a lot of focus on Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley shaping these tech products and doing this whatever but as my book sort of makes the case is it's also it's it's a two-way street and it's these big influential users and the culture that you facilitate that sort of emerges on these platforms that shapes them as much as the yeah, totally the infrastructure I'm going to spring this on you uh, without giving you time to prepare Ooh. so you can ask for time out and we okay. can come back. But are there writers on Substack who you would like to recommend and shine some attention on? Yes. Oh, my God. Such a good one. And there's so many people I'm going to forget. Okay. Where to begin? Well, I have to begin with Kate Lindsay, who runs Embedded. I love Embedded. It's a social media. It's like it's an internet culture, social media newsletter. It's fantastic. She always writes about trends before anyone else. I love LinkedIn bio as well. I read Garbage Day. Ryan Broderick. And Ryan Broderick, internet culture. I mean, he really delves the depths of the internet and finds things that surprise me as somebody that spends all day online. Wow. High praise. I love uh, Rain Fisher Kwan, Internet Princess newsletter. She is, I think, one of just the smartest, like young cultural critics. I love Max Reed. Um, he's a phenomenal writer. He, I think he's a full-time Substacker now. He, yes. Yeah. yeah, he was at New York Magazine. And he also just writes really thoughtful pieces on technology. Mm. And his Substack is called Read Max. I yes, <laughs> which is a perfect, mm -hmm. uh, perfect name. I love the like eyeball that he has mm -hmm. as his logo. Mm -hmm. I read Today in Tabs every day, which is like a kind of like a media industry news recap mm -hmm. thing. I like, let's see what else. I, well, Casey Newton, I mean is phenomenal and platformer, I think, mm -hmm. is such a model for what I hope is the future of media, independent voices, independently operated. He's and just breaks more news than like anyone else. I, I, it's shocking. Those are my main ones. I follow a lot of other people, but those are those are the ones that are kind of in my in my regular rotation. I'm now realizing I follow, I think, close to like 100. That's right. Tell everyone how amazing all these writers on Substack I mean, it's are. just great because a lot of people that I follow don't publish regularly. Like the ones that I mentioned, I read every time they publish. An amazing selection. Thank you very much. And thank you for taking the time to be on The Active Voice. And thanks for all your work over the years, plumbing the depths of the internet on behalf of society and showing us the culture that lives there. This was so fun. Thank you so much. You can find Taylor Lorenz on Substack at taylorlorenz.substack.com. That's T-A-Y-L-O-R-L-O-R-E-N-Z.substack.com. See you next time. And don't forget, you can subscribe to this podcast, The Active Voice, on Substack. You can find it at Substack Reads, which is read.substack.com. R-E-A-D.substack.com. <laughs>